0: peaceful protests. We're walking, raising awareness. Some of the injustice that we've been seeing is not okay. And As a young person, you got you to listen to our perspective. Our voices need to be heard. People are going to look back. Our kids are going to
1: look back at this and say, you were a part of that. I got a grandfather that marched next to Dr. King in the 60s, and he was amazing. He would be proud to see us all here. We got to keep pushing
0: forward. Sports are like the reward of a functional society. Sirius XM Sports presents Forward Progress, a weekly open conversation on race and sports
2: in America. Here are your hosts, Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison.
1: Back together. It's Morrison. It's Jackson. We're so glad that you have emerged at the confluence of race and sports. A little bit later in the program, we're going to dive into mental health. Uh, Mia St. John, one of the great boxers, let alone female boxers, five-time WBC champ, has a book out sharing really Kirk the depths of loss. Uh, her yeah. son committing suicide, her very famous uh, husband, father of her children, uh, Christoph St. Jean, unexpectedly dying, and, and living with that, uh, and trying to fight through her own demons. Um, we'll we'll lock in on that. Uh, we're not far from. Dr. King's celebration yeah. in the NBA holds that torch with a, a beautiful Monday coming up of celebration and, and orange leather. But we start off in your neck of the woods, my man. Uh, listen, at the end of every season in the National <laughs> Football League, it's pink slip time. I think it started on Sunday, though, didn't it? Because the whole Saturday game. <laughs> I think Denver got involved before Monday. Uh, but there was one that blew us all away, and I still don't get it happened right here in my backyard coach Flores being relieved of his duties and it's a it's a complicated thing right so let's put all the pieces on the table um it's not a great relationship with the quarterback right allegedly
0: allegedly um, yeah
1: it introduced me to the player that loves their head coach by the way right um and then uh, a a at least different philosophy with the mm-hmm. general manager, Greer, who's also African-American, by the way. So yeah. that, that that's an interesting card yes. to have on the table. <laughs> um, and then, uh, listen, I don't know if you're going to find a more proud graduate of the University of Michigan than Stephen Ross. And, yeah. and all the insinuations of trying to get Harbaugh to find his way. Um, a lot of that's been blasted as we re- as were recording, but I believe things all the way up to the press conference, my man. So... Um, First of all, about is there something here on the Coach Flores level that gives you pause about what it takes as a black coach? Or was he adjudicated as a coach with a team owner, governor, however terminology you want to use at this point in the National Football League, um, that has every right to do what they want to do with their team, even if the fan base and the media push back on.
0: Yeah. It's always hard, Jax, because, um, you know, when you see a African-American head coach get fired, you always say, OK, well, what was he fired for? That's the number one reason. Mm-hmm. If he was fired for uh, production, um, then I understand it. Lack, or his lack of production, I should say. That's the one thing I learned in the NFL. This is a production-based business. I had a right. head coach tell me that. This is a production-based business. If you produce, you will be compensated well. If you don't produce, we'll fire your ass. <laughs> That's what you <laughs> hey, Simple. <yeah>. Simple. <laughs> Simple. Hey, Jax, I mean, I'm just, we, we they kept it real right. with me. And I had that mentality as a player. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine what it is as a coach because now you're dealing with Not only 53 men on a roster, obviously more with practice squad and and training camp rosters. You're dealing with head coaches. I mean, sorry, other assistant coaches. The head coach also deals with the general manager. And he also has to answer to a higher power, which is the owner of the football team. Brian Flores was not fired for his lack of production. He was only the head coach of the Miami Dolphins for three seasons they go five and eleven ten and six and nine and eight so he went back to back winning seasons right with the, and down the stretch this one. Right, yeah. <laughs> now obviously some people may say well they started one and seven this season they do. but they won eight games in a row um they finished over 500. this was a winning football team the year prior he went 10 and six and Look, they didn't make the playoffs. I, I get it. I understand it. It was a pretty good field the year prior. But I, I'm bringing all of this up because isn't that what you want to see? You want to see a winning franchise. You want to see a team that's winning. Yes, they had a hard patch to start, but they won football games. I go back to Jim Caldwell as well, another former Black head coach. He was formerly with the Detroit Lions, and he had back-to-back winning seasons. And yet the Ford family in Detroit fired him because they said, oh, well, he can't get us over the hump. And I'm like, have you seen the Detroit Lions football organization? Y'all ain't one in the playoffs. Like, come on, man. Like, and so that's the hard part, Jax, is so many loops that black head coaches have to jump through. And this one was not because of his lack of production. He did produce. This was because the relationship between he general manager and owner may have been strained, may not have agreed eye to eye on certain aspects, whether it's their quarterback or a possible quarterback out there. Maybe there's one in Houston. That's looking for a trade. I I shall remain nameless, but Mm -hmm. there are certain things that I know coaches have to deal with. Right. And I just think that in this situation, Brian Flores is got the short end of the stick. I think that he was the guy that players played for and motivated for. And yet this team decided to walk away from it. And it's just more magnified because he is black. Like like Joe Judge, and I know our, our producer, Pernell Brown, don't want to hear this, but, you know, the New York Giants fired Joe Judge. Now it was a reasonable firing because it was a lack of production. Like I get that. That's a bad football team in New York. But I don't get this one, Jax. Um we're still trying to wrap our minds, our brains around why do you let a good coach, why do you let him go? You know, I'm, I'm just I'm trying to put that because I also look at the stability that another black coach has presented in Mike Tomlin. So Jax, Mike Tomlin this year and I'm giving him his flowers now, 15 years, no losing seasons, zero, no losing seasons for Mike Tomlin as bleak as it may seem sometime as many different offensive coordinators having to deal with Ben Roethlisberger. Is he going to retire? Antonio Brown, Le'Veon Bell. He brought structure. He brought leadership. Yeah. that's all i ask if you have a leader of men that listen that respect this man you got to find ways to come together in these disagreements because the betterhood for the team is that you got a leader in place that guys play behind that's why i'm more upset because i just didn't see it man i don't i don't i don't i don't see the reason why i don't yeah and, and let's talk about Tomlin. right uh,
1: what what was it, it was 16 years ago yeah Had one year as a coordinator, right? One year, yes. Uh, How many of us could have given his resume at that point, right? (laughs) Um, And it was time for the Roonies to reflect their own rule, right? Yeah. Not just interviewing (laughs) African-American coaches, but bringing one in after all this time, being champions of the process, and and you see what that's reaped. Um, But let's talk about the NFL now as a whole. Do they value Mm. black coaches? In a black league. The, the National Basketball Association, which not perfect. Yeah. Seven African-American head coaches rolled in in the last rotation. Seven. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. The NFL is 70% black. As we sit here, and there's some rumblings in Houston that might change this number, right? As we <laughs> sit here... Two blackhead coaches, six percent of the league. I'm not saying it has to be 70%, it can't be six. And so while there's 32 islands, everybody sits behind that shield when it's convenient. So we're gonna put everybody behind the shield. It just doesn't seem after all of this discussion, after all of these initiatives, the word that keeps coming back to me is value. Do you value the asset that you have in this league? Of these men who have transitioned into coaching, elevated to position coaching, to coordinating, and just aren't getting the
0: opportunity. And when they get it, it, it the rug's pulled out for under. See now we now now we now we're going behind the curtain, and I'm, right. I'm glad this episode is of uh, forward progress is going there because it's taken me back throughout my career of playing in the NFL and what I witnessed on a day-to-day basis, still covering the league. We don't have enough black men as offensive coordinators,
2: mm-hmm.
0: right? Mm-hmm. Because when you hear the word offensive guru, offensive genius, a black coach does not pop in your mind, right? It's these young, you know, white offensive coordinators, right? Young gurus. And that's where the league is always trying to get the next hot hire, right? The next offensive mind. And that's the hard part because when you think of black head coaches, predominantly most of them come from where, Jax? (laughs) The defensive side, right? The guy who just got let go in Miami, Brian Flores, (laughs) was a defensive coordinator. Mike Tomlin was a former defensive coordinator, right? I'm just going on the list that that's where the NFL views it, right? You talked, you just said it. Does the NFL value the black coach? Well, a lot of the black coaches are usually assistants or position coaches. Mm. They're running backs coach, the wide receiver coach, DB coach. We need more black offensive coordinators. And the guy right now who holds that torch <laughs> is because Bruce Arians decided to uplift and give Byron Leftwich an opportunity. Now, he's the Super Bowl winning offensive coordinator. Now, he does have one of the great quarterbacks he's worked with, with, Tom Brady. But I think that's even more so, that you can guide an offense with Tom Brady and win a championship. I hope that he gets an opportunity this cycle because we need more opportunities for guys like the Byron Leftwitches, but Black coaches to be offensive coordinators, play callers. Because this league is about offense, Jax. They, they don't care about defense. When they bring in defensive coaches, that means you got undisciplined teams. That's Listen all. It is.
2: I'm this being to real, to man.
0: This is what it is. Hey, you bring in the black coach. You're saying honestly, and this is just my opinion, that you want to you, you're bringing in a defensive minded leader of men. That's what you get with the Tomlins and the Flores. Is that we need to we need to clean up our house. When you bring in the offensive guy, you're not saying that we're lacking leadership. We're lacking pizzazz. We're lacking offense. We're lacking explosives. That's what the NFL is. So it's the value, I think, of the owners also trying to make sizzle rather than make the meal, if that makes sense. It's going to be interesting
1: to see as the cycle obviously is going to present opportunity as as people um, lose the reins that they once held. There is an overriding feeling, that Coach Flores is going to get another opportunity. Do you oh, yeah. share that?
0: Absolutely, he'll he'll get another job because as a head coach, as a head coach, absolutely. Okay, um, if not this go around, it'll be the next go around. Right. And right now, we're trending in the in the in in the area of head coaching jobs are usually six to seven per year, almost maybe a quarter. Man, isn't that amazing? Yeah, yeah the turnover that profession is just diabolical. Yeah. <laughs> Put it like this, a quarter of the league, right? Usually, so I'm going between six and eight coaches are fired every year. That's just yeah. how it is. That's the cycle. I saw Glazers
1: board the other day
0: where it was there's like a dozen <laughs> names up there. I saw that. I'm like you
1: remember the, <laughs> yes. definitely these guys are okay. You get one he did dance around <laughs> Flores for a second, and then the guys that were kind of teetering in between. It's it's that way for pretty much every sport, right? Anybody right. that doesn't make the playoffs, we're gonna make a que- there, there will be a question about your
0: leadership. Somebody has to fall on the sword. You don't make the playoffs. Like I said, I've been in those been on those teams. You don't make the playoffs. Somebody gotta, somebody gotta fall on the sword. It's it's somebody's fault. And it ain't never the head coach's fault. It's, I'm gonna fire a coordinator or two, or I'm Start gonna there. replace this. Yeah, that's how it normally is. But mm. I do want to see in this cycle, because you mentioned it before, Chris Greer, who's the um general manager for the Miami Dolphins, is a black man uh who is in a position of power. And so I think that's where, you know, you're saying, okay, well, what's the next coach going to look like? What is it going to be about? Just want more opportunities for guys who look like excuse me, who look like me and you to be able to be in a situation and just be hands off. Right. The owners who are hands off to me, Jacks, are the ones that allow coaches to be themselves, be who you are, let your personality come out. Obviously, production is going to be, you know, obviously part of how you evaluate them, right. but you let let them do what they do. And at the end of the year, you have these conversations, but let them do what they do, because I, I don't see enough of that. There's too many owners meddling. Hey, what's yeah. going on here? What's going That's on here? Their billion dollar baby, you know yeah. that,
1: that's how yeah. that goes. Uh, one last thought before we run: There's somebody that's got their phone in their hand; they're ready to tweet at us. Well, what, what, what is equality and just merit going to be the thing in which this is decided upon? Kurt, Jax, come on! Just there are happen to be really good white uh, coordinators and head coaches, of course, absolutely. No one's pushing back on that. No, the question is, at this
0: percentage. <laughs> Right. 94 to six, <laughs> get out of here. Yeah, yeah. No, I, mean, I, I have friends of mine who are qualified coaches in the NFL who, who are white, who are getting opportunities. Um, but the opportunities they also are given is because of the status that they already have. And they're at a level that allows them to go one level up, which is a head coach. Right. So it starts with the assistant coaches being able to be put on that level so that they don't go lateral. They only can go up. Yeah. That's all it is. I, I want those coaches who I think bring a different dynamic. See, the thing is, I think we have to remember this. Head coach doesn't always mean you have to be uh, an expert or a genius on a particular side of the football. No. Right? You don't have to be an expert. You know, I do college football. The one thing I've learned about college football, a lot of these coaches now, they are just CEOs. Hmm. They are just CEOs. That's why college jobs are so appealing now to some coaches, because you go out and you hire the best sure. offensive coordinator. Right, right. You, you're hire, the company. Sure. you hire the best defensive coordinator, the best special teams coordinator. You hire the best recruiting and uh, recruiting coordinators. And you sit back and you run it like a CEO. See, you are the owner when you're the head coach. And general manager, everything, everything, everything Everything goes through your office. That's what I, 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 that's what I hope for the NFL. You know what I mean? That guys that you don't necessarily need these geniuses or you need that. You need someone who's going to be a leader of men who's going to motivate, who is going to get guys ready to play, make the right decisions. I'm, I'm, I'm just, uh, there's too many qualified men, white and black. That deserve an opportunity. I just don't like when I see too many people skip the line, right? You've been there before, you've been to Disneyland and all these different places, and here you are, you waiting in line. Come on now, we waiting in line and you waiting your turn, and then all of a sudden, boom, somebody just skipped the line. Now I know you could buy a fast pass and all that stuff, but hey man, I'm talking about the regular hardworking folks like me and you, Jacks. We waited in line. You want to see the people who are qualified get that opportunity and not those who haven't just similarly ju- jumped the line. I know you've seen it in the NBA, but we've seen too much of it, I think, in the NFL. More for us to observe
1: in the coming weeks. Uh, let's take a quick break. Our first, when we come back, Mia St. John joins us. Uh, boxing fans already know. Right. Since the mid-90s, mm-hmm. she has been doing a five-time WBC uh, champion and a mental health advocate. And one could say that she could have crumbled on, under her own mental health and the untimely death of her son and uh, husband. Uh, we'll give you and connect all those pieces for you uh, in this very sad story, but a wonderful uh, ideal focused on triumph as forward progress continues. <music>
0: You're listening to Forward Progress on Sirius
2: XM Radio.
1: Forward Progress continues. It's Jackson, it's Morrison, and we say hello to Mia St. John, who's kind enough to join us. For boxing fans, she needs no introduction. So I love that the show's on Fight Nation. All that, Now Fight Nation's like, finally, something for us, right? Yeah, um, I tend true. to kind of be a little heavy, Mia, with basketball. Kirk, uh, much more well-rounded than I am, but has a football lean. And so all of our, our friends... Uh, who know about uh, the fact that you're a five-time world boxing champion, uh, are so happy that we've got you on the program.
2: Oh, I'm excited.
1: Yes, ma'am. We want to talk about that path in your life, uh, but we should let everybody know uh, and help you move uh, uh, the, the the book that, we, that you've been uh, kind enough to share with the world as you advocate for mental health. Um, your memoir, Fighting for My Life, a memoir about... A mother's loss and grief. I ask every author that comes on here uh, because of my massive respect for putting it—you know—pen to paper and and, and text to uh, the, the bounded page. It takes a lot of courage to really lay it all out there. And and, and you're taking even further because you're taking your your inner pain and in
2: providing it for all of us. What motivated you? Yeah. Wow. Well, the book was so cathartic for me just to, like you said, pen to paper, just get all my thoughts and feelings out. And, you know, my pain started long before um, the death of my son and his father, Christoph. Um So just to get all of that out and let readers know um, that it's possible to, to overcome anything in your life. I don't even like to say overcome. I mean, you don't overcome with, overcome it. You just, you learn to cope with it. Right.
0: No, I understand. And one of the things I'm always looking at is everybody handles grief differently, Mia. And you obviously have been through grief in different aspects of it everyone handles it differently. How have you handled it? And what advice would you give to others who are still currently going through grief?
2: Well, I'll tell you, first of all, um, it was obviously losing my son to suicide and then losing his father. And then it was the death of my career. Um, even retirement. And as a lot of athletes know, it's, it, it it is it does feel like a death. Um, yes. So when all of that happened all at once um, how did I cope? I I had 30 years of sobriety um, and lost my sobriety went back to drinking um, right after I got the call that Christoph had died and ended up in a 5150 twice which is a psychiatric hold when you're a harm to yourself or others. Um, so I, that was my coping mechanism. And then when I got out of the hospital, um, I realized that, you know, I still have a surviving daughter that very much needed me. And, you know, what would happen to her if she had lost her whole family, you know, her brother, her father, and now her mother. And, um, so I knew I needed to deal with with all these issues at hand and and get sober again. You know, I had to get sober again to, if I wanted any chance of a life moving forward.
1: Be sick John with us here on forward progress the the text is fighting for my life a memoir about a mother's loss and grief you alluded to losing your son and the father of your children. And I wonder how much boxing ended up being this connective fiber throughout your life, that it pulls you out of the beginning stages of challenge and difficulty from your childhood. And how much of that that discipline did you have to call on this time around?
2: A a lot, a Mm. lot. I mean... I got so low to the point where, you know, I was drinking in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. I would wake up in the morning with the shakes if I didn't have a drink. I mean, that's how I was coping. And I finally, like, looking at the disappointment in my daughter's face and thinking, oh my God, like, I'm a five time world mother <laughs> champion. You know, this is not me. This is not me. I will not go down. And, you know, that's the attitude I had in the ring. I always said, you'd need a two by four to get me down. Because I was going to keep coming and coming and coming and nothing was going to take me down. And I had to use that same attitude. Like, what in the world am I doing? You know, this is not what my son would have wanted. This is not what Christoph would have wanted.
0: You know, they'd want me to keep fighting. I know one of the things when you do write a book, you you have to revisit uh, tough situations. You have to revisit moments in your life that you probably want to skip over. But in kind of revisiting uh, those moments, Mia, and you write them down and you figure where you were at in terms of uh, your, your headspace at the time, was there something that you say? you know what, I wish I would have done this differently? or I wish I would have realized some of the triggers that may have put me in a position where I wasn't thinking properly. It it, was there something that you go back to thinking I could have done differently.
2: You know, that's a very good question. Um, And I'll tell you what was even harder than writing the book was doing the, I had to do the audio version and I had to read it myself. So I had to read my own words back to me and, and yeah, I really started contemplating my life and, realizing that no, that I, I don't regret anything because everything positioned me for the exact place that I was supposed to be at at the exact time. Like everything I went through, like even losing my sobriety, being 5150 um had put me in a position to deal with, um, to overcome, or to, um, to keep fighting. So everything, every decision I ever made, I believe was meant to be, I believe it was the will of the universe, the will of my higher power. Mia St. For Jennifer. a lack of better name, a, a lack of a better name, <laughs> I, I, I choose to call God, but it's whatever your interpretation of God is.
1: Absolutely. Mia, thank you for that clarification. Take us back to the beginning. Right. Why boxing of all the things that you probably could have drawn to in sport, where were you first? And then how did you transfer into this space?
2: I first started in Taekwondo when I was six years old. Um, My dad put me in the sport and um, I didn't really love it, but I was really good at it. Mm. So I stuck with it. And, um, I didn't actually want to be a boxer until I saw Rocky back in (laughs) the late seventies. And, but you know, women weren't really boxing back then. So um, I kind of put it out of my mind. And then um, somewhere in the nineties, when I saw Christy Martin fighting on the undercards of Mike Tyson, I thought, Oh, okay, I can do that. I want to do that. And at the time I was training uh, with, the hopes and dreams of going to the Sydney Olympics. And, um, I thought, oh, the, you know, even though I was winning my tournaments, it was like, well, the girls are too young and I'm getting older. So I better either start doing this for a living or find a new career. Um, I did get a bachelor's in psychology, so I'd always been interested in mental health, but I knew that my heart was, was with fighting and competition. So, I turned pro in 1997.
0: So in turning pro in 1997 and also having a bachelor's, like you said, in psychology, where do you think mental health has gone from when you first were aware of it, um, started maybe to learn of it, maybe the stigma back then to where we are now in 2022, where I feel like mental health is a lot more understanding. People realize that it is real more so than maybe back in the late 90s, early 2000s.
2: Kind of. I think it's very slow moving. Um, like, for example, I had a son that had a paranoid schizophrenia. And a lot of times you see them homeless, um, addicted to drugs. My son was addicted to meth. Kristoff um, had bipolar and was an alcoholic. And at some point in his life was also addicted to not meth, but crack. And there was, there was a lot of stigma, you know, um, surrounding that. And, and I think still, even when, you know, we, you know, we live in Los Angeles, or I live in Los Angeles, sorry. Uh, you pass street corners, like downtown LA, and you see like the homeless, like half clothed and talking to themselves and screaming out obscenities and whatever you see. Um, There's not a lot of compassion for that. There's not a lot of compassion. People avoid, they ignore them or they try to rush by them or there's just not a lot of compassion. and and that was my son. That was my son when he would run away from home, get disoriented, get back on the drugs, and end up on the street somewhere. And it would be me and Christoph searching the streets and jails and hospitals searching for our son. Mm. So um, I see a lot of a lot of awareness now for mental health for For your less severe cases, you know, like depression or anxiety or uh, even alcoholism. But I don't see for the more severe mentally ill, I still don't see that we've come all that far. And it's a very sad situation.
1: Yeah, no doubt. Uh, but you're I
2: mean, doing- people, uh, not, I'm sorry, uh, not okay. to interrupt you, but I just want to say, and, and, and look at like Christoph, who was a, a, a two-time Emmy award-winning actor, spent 30 years of his life on, on Young and the Restless and, mm-hmm. and, and a whole, you know, started acting as a, as a seven-year-old and, you know, spent his whole life on television. And, and when he would act out or, um, leave the set or collapse on the set or, um, there was very little, um, uh, understanding of that, you know, why can't he get his shit together and what's wrong with him? And oh my God, he's crazy. And I saw a lot of that. Cause I, I took him to work a lot of times, um, because he was, he, you know, wasn't in a position to drive. Um, but I saw very little tolerance, um, for even an actor like him that was so well known, you know, and that, that upset me greatly.
1: She's a boxing champion. She is an author and also quite honestly, a champion in the area of mental illness, homelessness, addiction, all the things Mia that you've talked about, Share with our listeners the organization you founded to really impact these things.
2: Well, I founded the Mia St. John Foundation, which is called El Saber es Poder, which means knowledge is power. Um, And I work with, I'm on the board of an organization called Step Up on 2nd Street, which is actually nationwide, but it was based in Santa Monica on 2nd Street, where we uh, serve a lot of the homeless um, who are mentally ill. Um, but we have programs, and right now I am starting one um, actually next week um, for those who are severely mentally ill and homeless and on the streets. And what we'll be doing is searching for them, the the missing ones, and trying to to link them up with services that they so desperately need.
0: You know, Mia, um, a lot of people are going to read this book Um Fighting for my life: a memoir about a mother's loss and grief. But also, too, I know you also are working on a film, I believe, and trying to also uh, educate more people about mental health and how they can improve themselves as well. After doing all of this, what do you want people to take away from it? What's the big thing that after they read your book, after they watch your film, after they listen to your words, what's the one thing that you hope that someone takes away from all of this?
2: That no matter what you go through, um, no matter what tragedy um, you can, um, and like I say, I don't want to say overcome, but you can deal with it, and and you can cope, and and there is hope for to have that happy, joyous, and free life that you've always wanted. Um, there's a new chapter ahead of me you know, that I can't wait to see, you know, what that looks like. Um, because like I said, retirement was so hard on me and I was kind of forced out of boxing. You know, I'd gotten to an age where I was approaching 50 and promoters just weren't willing to take that liability anymore. And and I had suffered so many concussions, you know, so I was a big liability. Um, so to deal with that and and i just want people to know that even though one door closes another one always opens and one chapter might end in your life another one's going to start
1: our friends at cnn call her a mental health warrior and added to the list of five-time champion author the new book is fighting for my life a memoir about A Mother's Loss and Grief. Make sure you pick it up. Mia, thank you for the time. We appreciate you swinging by. Thank you so
2: much for having me. Bye, you
1: guys. More to come here on Forward Progress. And we'll focus in on the leadership of the National Basketball Association, always lifting the dream and memory of Dr. King to the highest of heights. We'll talk about the plans coming up when we come back. You're listening to Sirius XM
0: Radio. We now return to Forward Progress. Here's Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison.
1: Thanks for rolling with us here on Forward Progress. As we know, this nation, this world really, will celebrate the gift of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. uh, As we do in the middle of every January, acknowledge uh, his contribution uh, to all of us, of course, spearheading, Uh, civil rights for Black folks, but really fairness for every person. Uh, We have to remember that man was fighting for equal job scenarios Mm -hmm. in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, uh, upon his assassination in 1968, Um, that it was starting to reach into other areas of life of, of just, and what is it that we're here trying to get Let's boil it down. It's real simple. A fair shake. Yeah. After the hell this nation put black folks through with the transatlantic slave trade, honestly, that the civil rights movement wasn't about retribution. It wasn't even about uh, a reckoning. It was just, can can we just get a fair shake? Yeah. (laughs) Can we we just start in the same spot? Can we have the same protections and service of the society? Can, Can we be in the same places to eat? And congregate and be, mm-hmm. to be entertained, like all of this for our very young listeners, uh, were this wasn't even close to something that was in reach in the mid fifties yeah. when this movement really began. And Dr. King lent an ideal to it, nonviolence, a yeah. voice to it, Southern Baptists, <laughs> like just fire yeah. and brimstone, an intellect to it, right? One of one of the most brilliant yeah. Americans of our time. Um, in his in his worldly study of theology and uh, peaceful
0: protest mm-hmm. man it was um you know every time we are always reminded you know, that's why we observe the holiday for uh Dr King and so many people who uh, lives that he helped how he helped change our country um that we still aren't where we want to be but we have come a long way yeah. and you know, I was thinking too, Jax. I know we have a little time here, um, but, you know, we did lose someone too, Jax, this past week. Um, the great Sydney Portier. Mm. And I was thinking about, you mentioned having a seat at the table, right? And how, what, what, what Sydney did in terms of getting that seat at the table or having to find a way. And I don't know what all he had to endure. You know what I mean, but I know back when he started acting, and you know this is going with, you know my my grandma, you know or the the my, my older folks talk about that Sydney Poitier, you know Sydney Portier. I didn't even know who he was growing up, but you but when you when you first heard the fried. name, you knew that right? you knew that. I was like that name, and so I, I think about what he presented or what he meant, just as much as Dr. Martin Luther King, right? So as much as we remember Dr. King and his remembrance in his day, I know we did lose Sidney Portier, who, um, you know, was 94 years of age, Jax. And he also had a hand in sort of the evolution that you could also be an actor. You know, we, we talk about Jackie Robinson a lot. We talk about some of the people who broke the color barrier. Sidney Poitier was, was that for a lot of folks seeing his face in television and movie as well. And we gave him a ton of flowers while he was alive. And I know in his passing, we're going to give him even more flowers, mm-hmm. but you know, it just, it just in remembrance of Dr. King, I'm also in re- remembering Sidney Poitier as well. The celebration of Dr. King is a centerpiece of the NBA
1: calendar. And because the NBA has center stage, Um, On MLK Day, uh, we're dealing with the 20th annual Martin Luther King Jr. Day celebration game in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, Mm -hmm. For two decades now, um, the place of his demise has pushed up through a partnership between uh, the Memphis Grizzlies, the National Civil Rights Museum, and the city of Memphis, Shelby County, all getting together um, to not only just host a game, and, and, yes, the, the Bulls and Grizzlies will put on a good one, by the way. Yeah, yeah that's going to be a good one. one. Um, <laughs> but it's also an opportunity to honor folks. And the National Civil Rights Museum Sports Legacy uh, Award honorees have been noted. I'll give them to you now, with some thoughts on each. Muggsy Bogues yeah. will be honored. Elvin <laughs> Hayes mm-hmm. will be honored. And Allen Houston will all be uh, uh, celebrated on game day on uh, January 17th during the Earl Lloyd Sports Legacy Symposium. By the way, Earl Lloyd, one of the pioneers yeah. of the NBA when the color line was broken in 1950. Mm. So um, it's fantastic they acknowledge him as well. Um, but uh, listen, Muggsy Bogues, 14 NBA seasons, uh, yeah. as one of the smallest players yeah. ever in the mix. And uh, <laughs> he's uh, on the 58th and 75th anniversary yeah. teams. Uh, and a Hall of Famer, and uh, 12 years in the NBA, a two-time All-Star uh, with Allen Houston, who has one of the worst shots I've ever seen in Heat history. <laughs> that shot, man, in 99, bounced all over the place and in and the top-seeded Heat. Yep. Gone. <clears though. throat> prior to my arrival, but still, I remember sitting in Bristol and it yep. doubled me over because I was surrounded <laughs> by all those Nick fans, and I had only been about three years removed from working in the Miami market, but uh, it's not like we discuss that every time we see each other. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. We, we actually yeah. do, but it, it's really great what happens on this day because it's it's a celebration. It's a first of all a discussion of these right. individuals, their impact, their remembrance, um, and then also you know some some places where something tragic occurs that can be a dark cloud. Yeah, kudos to Memphis for making it. Uh, with the Lorraine Motel, with with uh, the museum itself, uh, this wonderful celebration uh, taking control
0: of the narrative of celebrating Dr. King. Yeah, no, it's it was, you know, I'm glad that the NBA does this. Uh, I I told you, uh, you know, we on a previous episode that I had a chance to do a Memphis college football game this <clears throat> past college season, and you know, for me, walking around the Lorraine Hotel and walking around uh, the museum and. taking pictures and and looking around and just the eerie feeling of, you know, what took place there, but at the same time, uplifting, it's part of the history. It's part of, you know, why we're uh, celebrating this day because a man's legacy didn't die that day. A man's legacy kind of was starting, was starting because everyone realized what we lost and how much we will continue to miss him. But his passages his thoughts his beliefs definitely still carried on and it's still carrying on and when the NBA does these things it's you know what's the uh you know what's the Dr. King game right there's there's certain days in the NBA calendar right that you uh, you mark down opening game Christmas <laughs> right and then obviously Dr. King day those are the three like marquee games or days of yeah. the NBA Before calendar, star of the playoffs. Before you get the all, yeah. Yeah. All-star and you know, you get the all-star and you get the trade deadline and playoffs or play-ins. We get all that, but to start the season, it's you know, opening night, it's you know, obviously Christmas Day and then Dr. King Remembrance Day because, you know, not only are you playing for a um, you know, a day of remembrance, but a lot of guys take a lot of pride. And you see different players and Uh, whether it's the shoes that they wear, the messages that they preach, and you get the conversations too, uh, right. As you approach the game as well of what Dr. King meant to so many guys in the NBA right now, currently. Yeah, I'm blessed over these. uh, Oh man. It's been over half a decade now, almost a full
1: decade of of Mm -hmm. being a part of the serious XM sports family. I've had the pleasure of hosting uh, the King special on NBA radio and I'll do it again this year. So I'll speak. Um, hopefully to all three of those guys. And then also have some remembrance, uh, uh, with, with some of the pioneers in this game. And I always feel like, uh, discussing the evolution of the awareness, right. Okay. For 12 hours on the 17th of January, um, you'll see different types of celebrations from sea to shining sea. I mean, like literally it'll be Pels and Celts, uh, At 1230 and at the end of the night, Jazz and Lakers will take you all the way to, you know, midnight East Coast and beyond. And in each of those contests, in each of those municipalities, and I think there's no overlap, right, in 12 different cities across this nation, um, Black folks will be able to tell their story about their hero. Yeah. And that's, you know, Dr. King didn't intend it for him per se. Correct. But that's the opportunity, right? Yeah. Just utilizing what you've built, right? The yep. content of your character into a, a, a connection and reckoning to let that freedom ring, if you will, <laughs> um, and, and take a day, uh, even while performing and working, um, to acknowledge just the immense shift in our nation's timeline because of that man's sacrifice.
0: Yeah, The, the ongoing legacy. Right. That even when a guy has is no longer on this living earth, his legacy is just as strong, if not stronger.
1: That's going to do it for this edition of Forward Progress. It's always a pleasure to have you by. Thank you so much to Mia St. John for stalking by and, and sharing um, not only her text that we gonna get our hands on, but also her, her emergence from demons that have been trying to grab onto her since she was a kid. For our producer, Pernell Brown. Kirk Morrison, I'm Jason Jackson. This is Forward
0: Progress. We'll talk to you next time.